Oh, you know, like, bro, I'm I'm really into I'm really into like the the latest finance bro technology. You know, uh-huh. like Robinhood. <laughs> sit around, yeah, love Robinhood. Great story, actually. Fantastic archer he was. Welcome to Please Fix Things, a podcast where we analyze and reflect on the bizarre trends surrounding young adults today. Hi, I'm Raj Parekh, and I'm Sanchit Wadhawan, and we're just two young professionals who sleep in, don't diet don't have a side hustle, and don't have travel recommendations for you. And we're doing totally okay. If you're like us and you feel drained by the fads, norms, and ideas defining our culture today, come join us as we try to make sense of the forces taking a toll on our well-being and give our take on how to fix them. Welcome to the season finale of our very first inaugural season of Please Fix Thanks. Today, we're going to be talking about interviewing and the job recruiting process. To kick things off, we're going to be starting a little email. Think of this as a disgruntled manager emailing you to fix a problem. Then we're going to have a brief response addressing some of the concerns and issues. And then Raj and I will go into a brief discussion about how we feel about recruiting, interviewing, and some potential fixes. So with that, Raj? Dear Sanchez. Why do I need to tell my interviewer what I hope to do five years from now? When a company asks for 10 plus years of experience for an entry-level job, was the expectation that I was supposed to start interning in elementary school? We're at a point in time where the interview process, job description, and the actual job itself are going in three separate directions, and somebody's got to tell them to turn towards each other. Please fix. Thanks. With regards, Raj. Dear Raj, there is a disconnect between the job interview process and the actual job. Are interviewers and companies capable of discerning the best candidates for jobs or college admission seats? A lot of research suggests no. Companies pour millions of dollars annually for the purpose of recruiting the best talent, but their approach is convoluted and ineffective. The rise of AI in the resume screen doesn't do a lot of favors for anybody either. Crafting the perfect resume to impress a bot and a person increases the stress and anxiety of job seekers and resume builders. Looking for a job is always a daunting proposition, but it isn't made any easier by the recruiting and interviewing process. Companies should focus on being more transparent about the qualifications they are looking for, focus more on hiring active job seekers, and rely less on the interview and on more objective data points from a person's work and educational history. So Raj, with that, Do you want to talk about what the recruiting funnel kind of looks like from the company perspective and what that process is? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with the question, you know, why are companies hiring in the first place? So we're going to throw you some facts in the next couple of minutes. So bear with me here. The Census and Bureau of Labor Statistics data shows that 95% of hiring is done to fill existing positions. Most of these vacancies are caused by voluntary turnover. So that clearly means that employees are considering a position elsewhere, which leads to typically career advancement or a pay raise. And the root cause of this problem, therefore, is drastic and poor retention of employees. Now, the second question we have here is, okay, what are companies doing to fill this need then? All right. So as per LinkedIn data, we have about 66 million jobs that are filled in the United States every year. Employers are throwing an average of $4,129 to fill one job, 
which is crazy. And, you know, cumulatively, the estimation is about $20 billion are spent on human resources and, you know, vendors and that entire funnel. But the sad part is uh, only about a third of the U.S. companies actually monitor whether their hiring practices are leading to good employees or good, you know, selection of employees in the first place. And even the ones who do it, you know, very few of them do it carefully. Perhaps even a fraction of those even pay any money to track these hires and, and track their you know cost to hire and, and and time to hire. So with all of that, you know, facts set up a beautifully disastrous system called the interviewing process. And and Sanjit, do you want to just go let out all your hot takes on the interviewing process and and how we've come to this point of time? Interviewing itself, a lot of companies do these behavioral interviews, which are often unstructured, right? Like it might start with a tell me about yourself or you know, tell me about a time you failed or some sort of behavioral question and then evolve from there into like a 30 minute conversation where you go over your work history and why you might be qualified. It turns out that that's a terrible indicator and predictor of future job performance. Um, and a big reason for that is interviewers are often overconfident about the information that they glean from interviews. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like sometimes you'll have a hiring manager or even a manager recruiting for his own team say like, all right, let me talk to somebody and figure out, you know, if they're smart or not. I'll use my gut reaction or I'll just like know if somebody's good. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, both industry and academic research has shown that people are not good at judging others from a 20 or 30 minute conversation. Um, and, it, you know, this is problematic because a lot of times it's that final round interview that leads to whether you, or not you got the job, right? Your yep. resume, your objective data, um, you know, for us, we're, you know, two people who just came out of college, so our GPA probably had a lot to do with whether we got, you know, an mm-hmm. interview or not. It turns out that those are better predictors than just a straight behavioral interview. Behavioral interviews do become slightly better predictors of future job performance if the interview questions are structured and they're the exact same interview to interview and you can compare people across each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, they're not great. Uh, one one famous example of this is the University of Texas Medical School actually did a study. They in, like they had 150 people who they interviewed for positions at their med school and they had 50 spots open. Um, so they interviewed people. They decided out of 150, we're going to take these 50 candidates based on their interviews. We thought that they're the most qualified. Mm-hmm. But then something happened and they actually had 50 more seats opened up. So instead of re-interviewing the 100 people they rejected, they just picked 50 out of the 100 people for those extra spots. And they tracked, actually, they did a study where they tracked how the 50 people they interviewed and determined to be the best candidates did relative to the 50 people that they previously rejected because they thought they weren't as qualified. And it turns out that the 50 people that they rejected initially literally did no worse um, than the 50 people that they thought were better from interviews. And that's just like one example. That's just one example of like, there is so much academic research and like peer reviewed research out there that shows that, you know, interviews don't add a lot of value um, to the hiring process. And most people that run these interviews aren't doing a good job of actually discerning talent or not. And, you know, using more objective factors like GPA can actually tell you if somebody's smart or qualified in a more unbiased way. And the other thing, too, is a lot of these interviews oftentimes, you know, introduce bias. Like, I'm sure you've had experiences where you've interviewed with somebody and, you know, you'd say something to them or they say something to you and you immediately form that connection. Yep. That's happened to me more than once, actually. And I can 
you know, distinctly remember this happening to me the last time I was out there in the market and we we could relate on a very specific event that both of, you know, the, me and the interviewer experienced in in childhood. And we went off of, from that to the extent that, you know, it was a 45 minute quote unquote case interview and 30 minutes of, of that 40 of those 44, uh, 45 minutes were spent on talking about that one childhood memory. So yeah, those biases do kick in and they kick in pretty fast on, on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe you never have that click and you could be objectively, you know, let's say better than everybody else taking that interview round, but you would still wouldn't get in because the interviewer would not feel confident about your ability to lead a, a you know, a more client facing role or a more client facing part of the job in the future. Yeah, exactly. And, and that could be a bias. And that's one of the that's one of the issues that you laid out, right? Is like, what if you never have a connection with your interviewer, that click moment? The other problem too is that click moment is not a good predictor of whether or not you're actually good at that job, right? Like I've I've had experiences and I know like really specifically I was um, at a recruiting event for a company mm-hmm. and I was talking to a recruiter with a group of other prospective candidates and the topic of skiing came up. I oh, have wow. never gone skiing. Never done it. Never, never put it. on a pair of skis. I only wait. Have you live parking. next to the Smoky Mountains or something, don't you? Come on. Yeah, but like they okay, like they have fake snow in Gatlinburg, but fake I also snow. I, well, yeah, because they don't have enough real powder to like make a good ski slope. But we have we, <laughs> we do the fake snow thing over Gatlinburg. Apparently, is fun. I avoid Gatlinburg like the plague for a number of other reasons we don't need to get into. Um, I could I could have I guess gone skiing Season in North two Carolina. Episode topic, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, definitely. I mean, I don't have enough against skiers. Like, I'll watch the Winter Olympics. Like, that's uh-huh. cool. The biathlon event where they do skiing and shooting. That sounds kind of fun. But my point is, I've never gone skiing. I don't know three things about skiing. Um, I actually know two things about skiing, and both of them are because I had this conversation with this recruiter who was obsessed with skiing. Point is to say, I you know did not click with that recruiter at all and didn't get a call back. There's nothing against the recruiter, but I'm just saying like these sort of interviews or chances to make connections with people can lead to a lot of biases in a way that like might be very counterproductive in terms of finding the best talent. Right. So what we're saying is if if unstructured interviews are just poor predictors of job performance, such as what's our recommendation? Don't do them. Um, Our recommendation should be to first of all, recognize that they shouldn't be a significant part of your hiring process. If mm-hmm. anything, use them as like verifiers to somebody's resume, right? Like, okay, you should definitely put somebody, you have a better chance of picking a qualified candidate if you judge by somebody's resume and work experience than if you do judging them based on a case interview mm-hmm. or just a normal interview. And calling somebody in and having the interview be very structured where it says, hey, I'm going to ask these 10 candidates the exact same questions and see how they respond. Then making those questions like job related questions, right? So a little bit less of the, you know, tell me um, where you'll be in five years from now and a little bit more of the, this is a real life problem we face on the job. Like, what are your thoughts kind of thing? Right. Is better. Um, But more than anything, I can't stress enough that we need to be less confident about the opinions we form from 30 minute interviews. Like most people are not good at judging a person for a job based on them. And so I think just like taking that and keeping that in mind is going to help a lot. Um, the final thing I will say too is understand your biases when you're interviewing somebody, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, this can be like something like racial or gender, but it can also be like more insidious, right? Like, are you just biased towards people from the same region of the country that you're from? Are you biased towards people who had work experience in a particular industry? Um, are you more comfortable around people from various socioeconomic classes more than others? 
right? Like all those things definitely play a part in interviews, like subconsciously or consciously. And I think that's another area where companies could be missing out on a ton of talent because the people they have in charge of interviews, you know, are slightly biased against people who might be very good for the job. Absolutely. So let's take all of this that we've just talked about and apply it to a very specific yet personal example that both of us have faced in the past. And you know where I'm going with this case interviews, the good old cases. Oh, um, man. ABC, the ABC Enterprises has been having falling profit margins for like the last like 15 interviews I've done, man. I don't know what else I can do for them. Uh, yeah. So maybe instead of featuring themselves in this case, they could have like gone back to working and, and getting their profit margins to turn over and I wouldn't have to yeah. solve their problem for them. So that's that what been I'm nice. saying. It's like, if you want that's me to solve my a- bottom line recommendation up front is what, if you want me to solve ABC do. Enterprises falling profit margins, I'm going to need a check from ABC Enterprises. I'm not giving information for free anymore. Get out of here. All right. And don't ask me how many ping pong balls can fit on a 747. Company X would like to venture into five new markets despite doing terrible in their home market. How would you propose Company X moves into five different markets? Please strategize. Thanks. Not having it. (laughs) If Company X sells something that I want, maybe they can move into my market. Otherwise, don't care. Um, By the way, I would love to know who Company X is in real life because I don't think any CEO will be making that kind of decision. Whatever. I mean, whatever it is, <laughs> it's, it's not good. They, we need to rethink the way we do these and how, how useful they actually are. Um, case interviews actually are in many ways worse than behavioral interviews um, regarding the problem with overconfidence. Right. Okay. Like, okay. Before we get there, Sanjit, how about we tell our audience you know, who might not be familiar with the case interview about what that is? Just like a quick two sentence filler. Yeah, if your life is blessed such that you don't understand what a case interview is, (laughs) first of all, I'm very jealous because that's something that I wish I was ignorant to as well. But basically, the way these work is you have a case, right? So think of it as a scenario. Oftentimes, it's a generic company, like maybe ABC Enterprises is something I've seen in the past. And they have like a very generic business problem, right? So like maybe company X is seeing falling profit margins or company X wants to expand into a new market. And then they'll ask you a question, right? And so they'll say like, what would you recommend company X do to say fix their falling profit margins? And they'll give you a bunch of supplementary information and you have this case interviewer and you have to ask them questions about company X and tell them your way of thinking. But essentially, allegedly, the point of case interviews is just to see how you solve problems. Mm-hmm. And it's to see if you can think through information and data and come to a logical conclusion. And meanwhile, the interviewer is trying to evaluate you on your ability to solve that problem. Right. It's interesting because the second part of the case interview, you know, the part where you get graded or the outcomes, right? I feel like it's the biggest illusion I've, I've faced in my life. The theoretical outcome is if you give a well-presented, you know, logically flowing, structured answer, then you theoretically do well on the case. But from the interviewer's perspective, now that I've also taken interviews or case interviews, there's always a set agenda that we have. Like there's a set structure that we have in front of us. And the minute the candidate deviates a little bit too far out in either direction from the set like structure my brain automatically shuts off in a weird way and tells me that, okay, let's try to bring this candidate back to the structure I'm seeing in front of me in this like answer booklet for the case, which is counter to what the case was supposed to be, which is like, let your creativity out, give us a logical structure and you're good to go. But that that doesn't happen, does it, Sanjit? 
Well, no. And like I've, you know, administered practice case interviews and I've seen the, you know, answer key by which to grade the interviewees. And it'll mm-hmm. say like a good answer is and then it has like three bullet points. Yeah. And then, like, a great answer is everything in the good answer plus like three more bullet points. And then so you're like sort of this other person's trying to tell you a story, right? They might be saying like, all right, so based on what you've told me about this company and the stories that I've heard, I would maybe say, and all you're doing is looking for those bullet points. Yeah. Um, but the thing with case interviews is the way they're built is there's, you know, you're kind of told, okay, there's no right or wrong answer. We just want to see how you think. Mm-hmm. But there clearly is a right answer that you're grading against. And a lot of case interviewers, if they're not like experienced or great at casing, can fall into that trap where you're just like going against the standard sheet. The other problem too, though, is if even if you don't get distracted by that and you take what the case interviewee is saying and you appreciate their creativity, um, the lack of structure to a case interview in many ways can introduce more bias and un, like overconfidence, right? Like if mm-hmm. somebody comes to the same conclusion that you might have come to, you might greatly overestimate their ability to problem solve, right? You might read into that more, or somebody says something that like you disagree with in a case interview. I was like, that was my biggest fear when I was doing a case interview. If I said something and the person who was interviewing me disagreed with what I said, like I would immediately think it's over, right? Like what, that's what, what I would think, right? I would think, okay, now I'm on the interviewer's bad side per se, right? I'm never going to get through this round. And then this whole negative thought process starts flowing in. And then you try to, again, go into this bubble in your head saying, okay, what's the right answer? You know, what's the cookie cutter solution? And you fall back on the generic, which again, could lead to a worse performance in the case. Versus if you had just stuck to your point and the interviewer was grading you on your creativity, not on your cookie cutter answers. Right. Which if you also, if you think about it in real life and consulting, you know, if you tell, you know, if you have a client and you tell them something that they don't want to hear or that they disagree with, but you can mm-hmm. back it up, you're probably just doing your job, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like that happens all the time. But nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> yeah. The other thing too with case interviews, like it's a lot, it's very similar to like, you know, the SAT in the sense that there are literally practice books and guides on how to solve these, right? Like case in point is probably like one of the most famous ones, but there's other ways too. And it's like, if you just buy one of these books and you just practice a bunch, you'll get really good at case interviewing. And so like, can you imagine the the amount of money that's been poured in to prep and teach thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of MBA students every year around case interviewing? I know people who have cased for hundreds of hours to wow. try to get one of the and the and it's great that they're dedicated to do it. The problem with case interviews is casing for 100 hours doesn't necessarily make you a better consultant. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where we get to the idea of like, does the interview have strong predictive power in terms of being able to forecast who is good and who isn't good at this job? And it's like the more you can game something by like practicing it over and over again to where you're really good at this, you know, interview, the like more uncorrelated it becomes with whether or not you're actually good at consulting. Because I've I've heard of, you know, a dozen people say, okay, if you case 100 hours, you're going to be really good at case interviews. Yeah. I've never heard anybody say, if you case 100 hours, you're going to be a really good consultant. Never. Right, because it, it falls back on on the assumption that, hey, you're doing this thing X to get to an outcome Y, which has nothing to do with the actual real job or the thing you're trying to achieve, which is Z, right? Same thing for college admissions with the SAT example you gave me or GMAT and GRE at the grad school level uh, and then similar things with the interview process. Uh, even, with, even with tech interviews, right? I have a lot of friends who are software engineers right now uh, for tech companies, and even they have the same complaints. I, I, I would have assumed that 
a coding test would be a good fit to determine if you can, you know, make these sort of things to work on 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 the coding test and then you you would be a good indicator of how you do in the actual job with the kind of things or the kind of products that our company builds but that's not true because you know my my friend was talking about this the other day like he prepared for the coding test in let's say two languages and then the languages he's using on a daily basis and by languages I mean programming languages in this context so the languages he's using on a daily basis in his full-time job right now are completely different from what he's learned all throughout college. So it's the same thing that falls even in the tech world. And and no, no one seems to be escaping this phenomenon. Right. So, and again, it just goes back to the idea of, is the interview process, you know, a good predictor of the job? And, and I think the concept of like, you know, when the metric becomes the target, it ceases to become a, it's no longer a, a good metric. metric. Yeah. Right. Like it's kind of the same thing, right? If, if your goal is to find, you know, who's the best person at case interviews, then yeah, mm-hmm. case interviews are a great way to do it. If your goal is to find the best consultant, maybe case interviews aren't as effective. And similarly, like with tech jobs, right? Like if your goal is to find the person who can do a coding challenge in an interview the best, then have more coding challenges. But like if your goal, the more you stress the coding challenges in your interview, the less correlated that becomes with your overall target of finding really qualified applicants for your jobs. Absolutely. So we've been dissing on the case interviews for quite a while now. And then the natural question here is, what's the alternative? And we actually found something for our audience today. You know, through our research, we found one approach uh, that could be an alternative approach to case interviews. And that's the general mental ability test, which has been proven to be a far better predictor of fluid intelligence or the ability to solve problems in a variety of topics. Think of it as, as the example that the researchers gave us, you know, the researcher, the lead researcher and his colleague did a study, you know, in which they asked candidates to read through an investment memorandum and write down the main questions they wanted to investigate before making an investment decision. Now, the researcher and his colleague blinded the names of these candidates and they, you know, agreed upon which topics were important and which questions to look out for and how to grade those questions and what would constitute as like a great response or a good response, similar to what Sanchez was talking about earlier. And when they did that, right, they ended up progressing a candidate who had English as a second language, who would have otherwise not even been moved up to any interview round had it not been for the name blind tests and and the way that they did it. So that's one way to eliminate bias that you're going to have in a lot of these case interviews where you think you're looking for a creative range of answers, but all you're trying to do is look for a answer that's in front of you. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, something like the general mental ability test, something that is, you know, a little bit more objective than a conversation can, you know, open doors to talent that you would have never considered before. Mm-hmm. If you're chasing somebody and they're not fluent in English, that's going to bias your um, perception of how effective they are at the problem that you present, right? So I, I think that's brilliant um, and probably a better solution. I don't think there's any one easy solution to solving this problem, mm-hmm. but I really do like the concept of of the GMA or the general mental ability test. And I think it's something that you know we should look into further. To kind of close out our chapter on case interviews, um, you know, you mentioned earlier at the beginning of this podcast that maybe only a third of companies actually track and analyze and research how effective their interviewing and recruiting practices are at hiring good talent. Absolutely. And I just want to close with a story about um, our favorite company, Google. Um, <laughs> and so there's this guy, his name is Laszlo Bach. I, I saw this story on the internet. I think this is great. 
He mm-hmm. was a former um, senior vice president of people operations at Google, and he wrote a book called Work Rules. And you know, Google does a lot of you know research on their own company's processes. They're famous for you know running social experiments using their search engine and stuff too. Mm-hmm. And Google apparently scrutinized how effective their various interview techniques were. Mm-hmm. And they actually found that the case interviews that they conducted were worthless. All right, um, let's go to Harvard Business School and tell that to every MBA <laughs> candidate right now preparing for any consulting um, firm. Period. Yeah, and, and so the but the senior vice president of people operations at Google literally said, I never liked case interviews. They aren't predictive <laughs> of candidate performance and serve mainly to make the interviewer feel clever. Um, oh, I, I second that. I, I've seen partners and senior managers do that all the time where they have this nice little scoff to themselves, right? They're just feeling great that day. I feel like every time they do bad in a client, like a client call, they'll fall back to like interviewing poor little entry-level candidates is, is what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. And there's always this perception of, oh, we do case interviews, so we find smart people. Yeah. Right, which you know, makes you feel really good about yourself and your hiring practices because it's so challenging to get a job at your company. So like, because it's so hard to get a job at your company, you must only be hiring the best people. Um, company X is more selective than Ivy League institutions. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's all of that, right? So that's kind of you know, my final thesis on why we need to get rid of case interviews or at the very least de-emphasize them and understand that they're really not all that. Definitely. So Sanchit, are you going to keep up with the industry trends or tech trends now that, you know, case interviews are so great and awesome? Um, Probably not. I really only keep up with the tech trends that like directly influence, you know, my life and my line of work. But Oh, know, really? We... Which ones do? Please do tell. <laughs> oh, you know, like, bro, I'm, I'm really into I'm really into like the, the latest finance bro technology, you know, uh-huh. like Robinhood <laughs> sit around. Yeah. Love Robinhood. Great story, actually. Fantastic archer. He was. Um, <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, I got my I got my block watch on right now. I just ordered it from Amazon on Cyber Monday. Is, is Cyber Monday a tech uh, tech trend? A, a block watch? Okay, so do you have a yeah, smart dude. chain then? Yeah, I got is, a smart chain. For, I got a smart chain for my block watch, bro. Right, is it gold plated? Gold covered like twenty four karat gold or like what is it? Um, it's actually plated with a neural network. Oh, interesting. So I, I was gonna ask you if it was signed off by Bruno Mars, but uh, okay, I, I no, see. No, it's you. actually it's actually signed off by an AI robot that passed the Turing test. So oof. So you went to Japan for that during COVID. Oh well, kudos to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, I'm all about. That's how that's how invested I am in these trends. <laughs> and therefore, you shall pass this round of the case interview, which has nothing to do with your case. And now <laughs> you know what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course, of course, dude. Um, in all, I mean, in all seriousness, though, speaking of neural networks, machine learning, blockchains, and smartwatches, did I descramble all those words right? I hope so. It'd be really embarrassing if I didn't. Um, let's talk wow, about big buzzwords in this podcast, Sanchez. So much for keeping it honest. Yeah. Real. Well, the reason I'm inserting all these buzzwords into our podcast is so that when it's actually screened by an AI for like mm. different topics and tags, they'll hear those words and then they'll assess that podcast accordingly. Similarly, you know, to how they assess your resume based on the buzzwords you put in that. Okay, so let's talk about that. There, you know, employers these days are obsessed with new technologies and driving down costs of, of you know, getting to a new recruit, which as per the data we presented to you earlier was about $4,000 uh, per new recruit. So in order to cut down some of those costs, uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure Sanchez, you must have come across this this new practice that we've we've seen since 2017, 2016. You know, the recorded video interview, right? What that is is you open it up, 
it throws you a random question and you have two minutes to think about it and you just record your answer and some AI somewhere is analyzing your facial expressions and your verbiage and all that good stuff. And then you never hear back is, is, is what the case is basically. Like I heard back from Goldman about my interview two years after I applied and that was hilarious, but Hey, at least they got back to me. Right. What about you? Well, you know, if it took them two years to reply, you know, the one aspect of that process they didn't use AI for was responding to applicants, right? Yeah, I'd hope they would automate emails, but I guess that's the part of the funnel they didn't pay attention. Yeah, or attention to. Sorry, but yes, no, no, definitely. Um, no, I've I've also had experience with video interviews. Um, none of them have ever gone well, but maybe it's just because I don't video interview well. But also, like, it is kind of disconcerting and dejecting to know that, like, some AI program is just going to analyze your video um, instead of having you be evaluated by somebody who's actually a real person that you might be working with. I don't, again, I don't know, like, is there, what are your thoughts on how effective that process is? Do you think that companies that rely on AI in a video interview actually hire the best candidates? So the data that we've seen in our research is mixed, right? On one hand, yes, it does bring down costs and it brings down level of manpower that's required to interview a wide variety of candidates, or at least that's the promise of it. Now, on the downside, we all know the inherent racial bias in the data, and we could make a whole episode on how racially biased our you know, data is. And if, if you've seen any machine learning algorithm in practice, whatever you put in, like whatever your input data is, is the same kind of your predictions is going to get out at some point. Obviously, you're going to have very biased decisions coming out of those algorithms that are quote unquote, analyzing your facial expressions. So I like the promise of it. I like the fact that they're trying to interview a lot more people than you could have, let's say, by physically calling everybody over or having you know that many Zoom calls, which God forbid, I don't want to have one more Zoom call during Christmas. But on the other hand, the data that's been fed into these algorithms to you know predict performance or predict like the way we answered our, our questions, that's not such a good predictor of our actual performance in in an interview with an you know with the human being. So. Yeah, no, definitely. And the point you bring up about facial um, recognitions and how it analyzes your facial expressions. Um, it's pretty much proven that different cultures across the world have different facial expressions for different emotions, right? Yeah. Like the way, mm-hmm. you know, what a smile means to somebody in America. Like I know I've, you know, been told by people all over and I know there's even scientific research to back that like Americans inherently smile more than other yep. cultures mm-hmm. um, at things like what in a, a Russian wouldn't smile at an American would. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're happy or having a good time. It's just kind of a natural response. So the way somebody interprets or way God, in AI, man, everyone's becoming Californian. Oh my God, <laughs> save no, me! Man. No, man. Hey, hey, I will tell you that authentic geniality is also a Southern trait. Like, all right, perfect. We'll strike a conversation up with strangers and have a good laugh. It's one of those things where if your AI is judging expressions like that, then you know you might ding somebody from a different culture or judge them differently, not because right. they're better or worse at their answers, but because their facial expressions don't match your cultural bias. And the key point about AI for literally anything is all like AI and machine learning algorithms and programs are equally as biased as the people who develop them, right? Oh, Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but absolutely. pretty much if you're developing you know, an AI or a machine learning algorithm to figure out who might be a better interview candidate and you're in America and your worldview is like a Western lens, you know, your algorithm is going to have that bias too. 
Right. And, you know, that's why we see uh, an uptick in the amount of learning opportunities that's been poured, uh, you know, for data scientists around the world in, in the subject of ethics in AI, right? And how to account for some of these inherent human biases that are going into making these models and making these predictions. And again, it stems, it's, it's a two-part process, right? Number one, the humans or the developers themselves have a bias. And couple that with the data that we have, like most of the data that's tracked or most of the data that is, you know, quote unquote, valuable for these models are inherently inherently biased. And they don't usually have a wide variety of racial and gender identities and, and differences to factor into. And the end product is Goldman Sachs will never get back to you. What that is. <laughs> wow. You're just, this is all, this actually, this entire podcast is just, for you to throw shade at Goldman Sachs for being two years late and rejecting I you. really want to meet the recruiter who had, you know, I don't know how drunk that recruiter must have been to say, hey, looks like we haven't reached out to these 5,000 candidates since two years about a rejection email. So how about I press it now? Like, who thinks, like, why would you give me my rejection 765 days later than when I've applied? Like, what, what on earth? is making your life so miserable that you got to press that. Hey, email hey, Raj, take a hint, man. If she takes two years to reply to a text, she's just not that into you. Oof, that makes <laughs> sense. Well, it explains why they ended up paying $1 billion to uh, someone in Malaysia. Uh-huh. Oh, well, that's another, that's just a whole other podcast right there. We don't want <laughs> MDB now. Um, All right, so to wrap up this one, let's talk about how to fix the hiring process itself, right? So we talked about these three uh, pillars of, of recruiting. The job description the actual job itself, and the interview process. We've talked about the interview process, but let's talk about the job description and the job itself. Sanjit, first thing? Yeah, so my first sort of thought, right, is you mentioned that AI is really necessary for a lot of recruiting um, companies because they have so many applicants for jobs. And I think, you know, one way that they can help that is by making better job descriptions that more accurately um, tell people what the qualifications for this job is mm -hmm. and really focus on narrowing your pool of applicants in the first place so that you have a more manageable set of people to consider, right? Like if you just set a generic job description where you just say, I just need, you know, somebody with three years of experience, you know, you might get a thousand applicants and there's no way you'll ever be able to sift through that. But if you write a better job description with more realistic job requirements, with a more detailed like day in the life kind of write up with a more detailed like Here's the work you'd be doing. Here yep. are the potential career advancement opportunities. And then also like a salary range too, I think would be really helpful. I've seen a lot of jobs out there where like I have no idea what the salary for that job offer is. And it's like, should I apply to this position? Should I not? Will it pay me way less than I'm making now? Will it pay me a lot more? And I think that's, that's another thing that job requirements need to fix. Also, my biggest pet peeve, I don't know if you've noticed this, Raj, but everybody today is an analyst. Yeah. Can we come up with better job position titles? Everyone said, like, you're an analyst for something, right? I, I think we're at a point I'm where an we analyst do right analyst as a service. How about that? Let's start a company as analyst a analyst as a service. But if I did, it would say analyst. That's actually all it would say. My entire job title is just analyst. But it, there are so, people. Can we call chefs as like cooking analysts from this point on? They're culinary. Like, if you're a sous culinary chef, you're a culinary analyst. Okay. Is how it goes, right? All right, cool. It's uh -huh. everybody is an analyst, and it's all these generic titles. And the big problem is you have no idea how senior somebody who's an analyst. So what's know, a doctor for, like medical analyst? Oh, that 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 works. Or Probably medical analyst forever in training. There definitely are analyst positions at hospitals. I bet. 
Like, I yeah, don't know. For billing and, and, and like procurement, sure. Yeah, <laughs> procurement analysts. It's like, right. how senior is that? Oh, actually, you need 15 years of experience to be a procurement analyst here. When it's was I supposed title. to get that one? Is in the cradle, born in the same hospital? Like, yeah, exactly. My first Everybody, day like, there's, like, we just need better, more descriptive job titles, I yeah. think, as well. Because that, I think, throws a lot of people for a loop. And I cannot stress enough how important it should be that companies are transparent with salaries and pay um, from a recruiting standpoint. Cause I feel yeah. like I've, I've personally known people who will go through a recruiting process. Their hires will say like, Hey, we love your resume. Hey, please apply for us. I know people who are like, I'm super excited for this job opportunity. It sounds great. You get to the end of it. And it turns out that they're paying you way less than, you know, you need or want or are currently making. And you just wasted your time and the recruiters time because nobody at any point, established salary until you got your offer letter. That's a very interesting point because that bleeds in really nicely with our second point on how to fix the process. And that's around like, don't post phantom jobs, right? Like one reason what Sancho described might happen is you have a job that let's say you're actively recruiting for, you're promoting it, the interviewer is responsive, and all of a sudden it goes, it goes cold. I don't know, Sancho, if you've faced this one before, but you know, you're really in touch with the recruiter and then all of a sudden, like, boof, gone, no response back, nothing. And all they've done, honestly, on the back end from our research is they've put you in a pool of candidates that they call as passive candidates. And they'll probably reach out to you a year or two from now when they need you for a more, let's say, senior, mid-senior managerial position. And they really didn't want you to, at the entry level in the first place. So, that's also dead end. And that's a lot of money spent to just get your name into the system or just get a feel of how this candidate might be two to three years from now. So don't post phantom jobs. This one's more for the recruiters. Um, and if you, you know, we could all be better off with recruiters having like an office hour or like a Q&A session. Like, I don't know about you, Sanjay. Like I loved office hours in college. I'm pretty sure we've talked about this mm-hmm. uh, on this podcast before, but you know, we could all use, let's just say, 30-minute like office hours from the recruiter, especially the ones who say they're actively like recruiting for a job. Like they need to be more out there and not just be like passive receptors of like our resumes and then throw them in the dump when they want to. Yeah, no, I agree. And one of the biggest issues with the phantom job phenomenon, I think it's like it's some sort of labor law where like if you're hiring, even if you're hiring from within and you already have your candidate, you still have to post the job externally. Yeah. Um, and I know like that's, that's a big struggle that I've seen, right. Where you'll see like, oh my goodness, there's a really nice opening for this company. And you talk to them. And by the time you talk to them, they say, oh, the position's already been filled. Um, internally interesting fun fact here. So according to a LinkedIn, uh, company data, uh, from 2019, 48% of new hires are coming from internal referrals or like internally filled out. And I, and I believe that, right? It's like, you know, you hire within your own network and you, and you trust people you know. That's fine. But it, again, just makes it more difficult for people who are, you know, actively looking for jobs, you know, maybe outside their network or if they don't know somebody at a company. Yeah. And a simple, you know, Q&A session from recruiters can help you solve that problem, right? The recruiter can clarify like, hey, you know, this is, this is the deal. Like we got to post it externally, but chances are it's going to filled in by our internal job market. Like Amazon has an internal career fair. And and that I encourage more companies to have that as yeah, opposed to posting idea. every single job like on LinkedIn and giving false hopes to people. All right. So what's our final fix for hiring the process? Any last burning desires, Sanjit? I just cannot stress enough how we need to put less emphasis on interviews. Like 
if you have like the easiest example I can give, and I don't know, like Raj, you might not be able to relate to this, but it's the NFL combine. Um, basically the way the combine works, right. Is mm. when college football players graduate or they declare for the NFL draft, mm-hmm. they go through this talent evaluation process at the combine. They do a bunch of drills. So like for instance, wide receivers might do drills where they catch a football from a quarterback or a machine. Um, they'll see like how fast somebody is. They have, you know, objective tests for how strong somebody is tests for how well a person can move. And then you also have like game tape that you can evaluate and you can go back on video and see, okay, like this is what this person did in college. And then on top Uh of that, uh, different teams who are interested in a player can interview those players and say like, Hey, how good of a cultural fit are you for the team? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think out of all of those things, like the interview is at least in the combine pretty much like the least relevant or important part of the whole process. Most teams, as long as the player gives like three generic answers to your interview questions, like you, you know, you say, okay, I'm all right to evaluate and consider him. Right. The only thing the interview is for is to say like, oh man, this person has a real red flag. Or like if the player says something that makes you question his work ethic, then maybe you might come in and say, okay, I I don't want to hire this guy. This guy seems like he's really lazy and has only gotten by on talent his whole life. He won't work hard. But other than that, if the interviewer, if the interview goes well, basically it just means the player gave really generic cookie cutter answers to like really generic cookie cutter questions. Right. And you're evaluating him based on his game tape and his 40 time. And I think that's how all interviews should go. Like you should call somebody in, basically make them prove that what is on their resume is accurate and then evaluate them based on their resume and their prior work experience. You know right. I mean? And if that doesn't work, then you and I can relate on some random fact about cricket in India and I'll get the job. Right, Sanchez? I right? have gotten the job because I related to somebody <laughs> about cricket. Like, this is 100% a true story. Does that make me really qualify for my job? Probably not. Did it help? A lot more than it should have. We're right? still, so, quote unquote, analysts right now doing analysts. We're out here analysts. analyzing. So, right. yeah, my, my biggest takeaway is re- just recognize your biases, right? If you're more likely to like somebody because you can relate to them on a childhood memory, just understand that that doesn't make them more qualified for the position and you should Oof. take into account, you know, their resume a lot more than their interview. Rest uh, in peace. If my interviewer is listening to this podcast, he will not like me after this one. Yeah. But, uh, I, we got Someone's got to say it because therapy is too expensive. Like the, the biggest, yeah, the biggest question you should answer with your interview is like, can I work with this person? Right. And it should, it shouldn't be, can this person work here? I like, passed the airplane test, Sancho. Come on. What are you talking about? That's what they stress about all the time. You got to pass the airplane test. Well, the best part about COVID is now the airplane test is useless because we shouldn't be on airplanes to begin with. We got to pass the kids crying in the background test is what's going to happen. Uh, but that could be an episode about you know something in season two that's yeah definitely um but with that i think we've wrapped up season one we really have and you know we started this journey just a few months ago and we want to take this time to thank each and every one of you listening for being a part of this journey and and being here with us and giving us feedback and you know following us and sharing resharing liking our content thank you so much for all of that I think one thing we can ask for from you, um, you know, during this holiday season, if if you really like this podcast, just tell one friend, and that's all we need. Yeah, share it with a friend. You know, over at the holidays, hopefully you aren't going to be working and you'll have some time off. You know, maybe you meet somebody, meet a family member. They say, "Hey, what do you? What have you gotten into recently?" Tell them about Please Fix. Thanks. Um, if you know somebody who might enjoy what we're doing here, what we're talking about, um, let them know. It'd mean a lot to us. With that, we'll come back. 
for season two for sure. Sometime, you know, mid to end Jan. Not really sure when, but that's a discussion Sunshine and I will have very shortly. But we will come back with season two. We really appreciate you. You know, happy holidays and catch you soon. Yeah, talk to you in 2021. Thank you for listening to this episode of Please Fix Things. I'm Raj Parekh. And I'm Sanchit Wathawan. If you liked what you heard, we would really appreciate it if you could rate, subscribe, and tell your friends about us. Toss us on your Facebook feed, send us to your boss, or post this episode on your LinkedIn page and tag some people just to see what happens. We don't really care, just spread this around. You should also check out our website, pleasefixthanks.com, for all of our episodes and latest updates. If you want to tell us how we took the words right out of your mouth or have suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a note at hosts at pleasefixthanks.com. We hope to catch you next time. See ya.